Hi there. I'm Neha Gandhi, CEO of Girlboss, and your host for this week's episode of Girlboss Radio. First, I want to tell you a little bit about Function of Beauty. There's nothing more disappointing than getting a great recommendation for a shampoo or conditioner from a friend of mine who has gorgeous hair, trying it, and then realizing it's not cut out for my hair type at all. Which, if I look at this other person's hair, she has sleek, shiny hair, and I have curly, kind of frizzy hair. It was never meant to be. We don't all have the same hair, so it doesn't make sense that we would all use the same shampoos or conditioners. That's why I want to tell you about Function of Beauty, which is a hair care line that brings you shampoos and conditioners customized and individually filled just for you. You get to select your color and fragrance, or opt for dye-free or fragrance-free if you don't love scents. Plus, it's all safe, natural ingredients. Function of Beauty never uses sulfates, parabens, phthalates, mineral oils, or any other harmful ingredients. Unlike most drugstore brands, Function of Beauty doesn't test on animals. It's 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which is something that's actually really important to me. You know, on a personal level, my hair goals are basically just keeping my hair looking as healthy as possible. Like I said, it's kind of frizzy, it's coarse, it's curly, and it gets heat treated a lot and not cut that often. So healthy hair is the most important element of my care routine, and that's what I formulate my function of beauty for. If you want to create something that feels individually formulated for you, Girlboss Radio listeners can actually get 20% off of their first order. To redeem it, head to functionofbeauty.com slash girlboss and take the hair profile quiz. That's functionofbeauty.com slash girlboss, G-I-R-L-B-O-S-S, to get 20% off your custom formula. Let's get to my conversation with Wendy Zomnir. If you're a makeup fan, then I don't need to tell you about the magic of the Naked Palette from Urban Decay. It's an eyeshadow palette that basically changed the beauty game. Its versatile assortment of colors offered just the right mix of neutrals and shimmering pigments that felt universally appealing, and it quickly became a staple in every beauty fan's makeup kit soon after it launched. Just consider this. Urban Decay has brought in over $1 billion in sales of the cult favorite Naked Palettes. But the Naked Palette is only one part of Urban Decay's story. And on today's show, we're going to hear from Wendy Zomnir, the chief creative officer and a founding partner of Urban Decay Cosmetics. Wendy's love affair with beauty started at an early age, when she started playing with all the powders, creams, and tinctures in her mother's makeup drawer. Later, she turned this passion for beauty into a business, forming a creative partnership with a Silicon Valley powerhouse, which allowed her to expand her vision and launch Urban Decay in January 1996. A lot has changed since the company first launched in the 90s, but Wendy says that Urban Decay has remained relevant because it's always been ahead of the trends. Here's how she explains it. We really set out to create a brand that could be for men, women, redefine what beauty was. And it was really about self-expression. And I think the brand itself, it's really always been about storytelling. Even before that was the buzzword and cool and the thing to do with brands, we always wanted to like craft these little pieces that had a story and a history and, you know, something behind them. Welcome to Girlboss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the winding road to success. On this week's episode, Wendy Zomnir and I talk about the story behind the Naked Palette, how she got her first buyers, and what it was like working with influencers, way before influencers were a thing. Here's our conversation. Wendy Zomnira, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Welcome it's to Girl Boss Radio. Here. Thanks. So you have built a veritable beauty empire in urban decay. But I actually want to start way before that and talk about your childhood. Because you've talked a little bit about, you know, potentially getting sent home from school for wearing too much makeup and just having this love of beauty and makeup from a really young age. 
And I'm curious what your first memory is of playing with makeup or just sort of knowing that that was something special. I would tell you my first memory is my mom's makeup drawer. I really, I remember exactly where it was in her bathroom. And she didn't have this crazy, amazing makeup collection, but she had this one drawer and it was filled to me with like the most wondrous stuff. And it had a smell. And it was that sort of old makeup smell because, you know, we make makeup way better now than we used to. But that the oils and all of that as they age have a certain scent to them. And so I remember the smell of the makeup drawer as much as I remember exactly what was in it. And I actually have a couple little pieces of things in my office that I stole from her drawer. So I still have those like peppered around my office in places. Oh, I love that. What is the sort of feeling or sentiment that those evoke when you look at them today? Well, um, one of them is a brush. And I remember thinking it was the biggest brush I'd ever seen in my entire life. And it was so amazing. And now I look at it and I'm like, oh, my God, this is like an eyeliner brush, basically, because <laughs> um, we have, you know, we've a brush technology's come so far. The other piece that I have in my office is her train case from when she was a flight attendant, and her name was Bernadette Beach, which is like a movie star name. Um, so she's got a BB on this like train case that she would carry her makeup in as she was a flight attendant. And I have real mixed emotions about that because on one hand, it was like her really, she grew up on a cotton farm in Texas, and it was her sort of like really making it big. On the other hand, I look at it and they made her quit being a flight attendant when she got married because you had to be single and available. So I have these Wait, like, really? yes, I have these like mixed emotions about the train case. So it just reminds me every day, like right. the fight's not done. Just we got to keep pushing. Yeah. It's so funny when you were first talking about that, I was like, that sounds so glamorous. Your mom sounds like just like some icon of um, a bygone era, but it's also, it's a bygone era. Like I cannot believe that. I mean, I do believe that they treated women that way, but I guess there's still a lot of progress to be made. There's still progress, but we're making it. We're making it. I want to talk about your business a little bit Okay, and sort of, you know, Everyone who's listening to the show, certainly everyone who works in this office, everyone who loves beauty knows and loves Urban Decay as the brand that it is today. Maybe they loved the Naked Palette. Maybe they're still devastated that it's gone. (laughs) Maybe they love a collaboration, but people have really sort of an emotional understanding of what the Urban Decay brand is today. And I'm curious, when you started it, What was the hope and dream? Like, what was your vision for what it could be? Well, the hope and dream when we started was um, to create something that would speak to a huge, you know, swash of the population. It wasn't really, it was really about creating a beauty brand that didn't subscribe to the traditional notion of beauty. Because if you think back in 1995, 96, when we were getting this off the ground, it was you know, makeup in the department store was really pretty straight laced and the beauty visuals were really aspirational. And I always say, um, you know, you had to be like pretty enough, white enough, skinny enough, feminine enough to be considered beautiful. And most of us weren't enough. And so we really set out to create a brand that could be for men, women, redefine what beauty was. And it was really about self-expression. And it goes back again to a moment I had when I was a kid and, you know, having, you know, a parish priest walk up to me and say, you're hiding behind your mask of makeup. And I was thinking to myself, I'm not hiding at all. I'm showing you something about myself. I'm telling you my story. And I think the brand itself, it's really always been about storytelling. Even before that was the buzzword and cool and the thing to do with brands, we always wanted to like craft these little pieces that had a story and a history and, you know, something behind them. I love that. That thing you're saying about, you know, this is who I am. There is a, you know, uh, A Star is Born came out. Everyone was sort of assuming that they'd finally seen the real Lady Gaga. You know, they'd seen her without makeup and this was who she was. And she had this interview after the movie when she was doing the press. And she was like, that's not who I am. That's actually me 
in costume because the person that I am on the inside is the person that you see with all of the glam and just all of the makeup and everything. That's my internal expression. And I thought that was so powerful. That is really powerful. It's really, I'm really blown away because I just saw that movie on an airplane and her performance was so amazing that she, that actually was really a performance for her. That's really incredible. I want to go back to actually the genesis of the business. So you had this idea for what makeup could be. And I feel like I I so relate to what you're talking about because I think when I was growing up, I always saw like fashion magazines and beauty brands and fashion brands as this sort of uptown white lady chic. Right. And there wasn't a real representation of anything else. But having that idea is one thing. Building a multi-million dollar business that one day you sell to a huge corporation is quite another. So you met your partner, Sandy Lerner, who had founded Cisco Systems. And you guys did this together. So I have to give Sandy full credit. The start of Urban Decay is really the most beautiful thing about female mentorship. Sandy had done this with Cisco. Sandy was a powerful, self-made woman. And... I was this person who wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I loved makeup. And she and I met through her business partner. And she was really like, this can be done. You know, she was like, I want to start a beauty brand. And I was like, can that be done? And she really showed me the way to be a strong female entrepreneur. I mean, it was her genesis, her idea. I jumped in and was really able to bring that to life and really tell those stories and make it relevant for that generation at that time. Um, But without Sandy, like there would be, there's no Urban Decay. And even though she was only involved for a short time, I think her stance on I'm going to promote other women and show other women the path and help this young woman, you know, really move forward and realize her dream to be an entrepreneur, I think is huge. Is there anything specific that she said to you in a moment of doubt or in a moment where you were still like, I don't know. I have some really great Sandy Lerner wisdom is amazing. And I just remember her telling me once there's only so much Wendy bandwidth because she's, you know, she's a scientist, right? She's a, you know, she's a computer person. So she's always thinking in like bandwidth. She's a PhD in statistics. So, um, you know, there's only so much Wendy bandwidth and that really was the first time I was starting to really think about like, how do I get all this done and really became a better manager, a better delegator, better at compartmentalizing what was important and what could be pushed aside, what could be, you know, outsourced, what had to be kept inside. So I think it was really good. It made me really take stock of where, where I'm at in any given moment and really do the best with the time I have. So what was the first step you guys took together? You were like, okay, great, we can do this. We can build this company together. You incorporate and you, where do you find the funding? So um, Sandy had made a lot of money. So she was basically the angel investor and the partner, which was great. Um, So that was how we got it off the ground. And where we started was we wanted to make nail polish and lipstick. And we wanted it to be completely different. So I was like, why don't we put the nail polish in medicine bottles? And that was really where our iconic bottle came from. And then the lipsticks, we were like, oh, this vintage lipstick case. It was like a vintage from the 50s lipstick case it looked like kind of like you know an industrial shotgun shell or some sort of part off a machine and we were like this is really cool and so I tracked those parts down and managed to you know source them find them convince these uh, suppliers that they should sell to me I mean there weren't a lot of beauty indie brands out there it wasn't a thing to like sell to indies and sell to startups I had to like convince these big companies to take our orders let me place POs. I mean, the first POs handwritten in my handwriting. It's pretty funny. What was that like tracking down sort of the right vendors for those things and finding those cases? Because it wasn't just a Google search away, I imagine. No, there the was 90s. no Google search. <laughs> um, there was no Google search. What I did was went to, you know, car paint manufacturers. I was like, do you make nail polish? And they were like, yeah, the same supplier. So then I was able to track that down in New Jersey. And then I asked those guys like, hey, where would I buy bottles? And then, you know, I just kind of started networking and asking people without conflicts for other sources and sort of built a network. And then I found out there was a show, there was a trade show. So I went to the trade show. Um, In terms of retailers, um, 
I actually, my boyfriend at the time had a friend who was selling swimsuits. He was a swimsuit rep and he was driving up the coast calling on his customers. And um, I had no resources for where to sell this stuff. So he stopped at my house to like take a shower, freshen up before his next call. And while he was in the shower, I just borrowed his buyer list, wrote down all the names and numbers, put it back in. I know I had to be resourceful. <laughs> and I would call the swimsuit buyer and be like, hey, I got your name from Fred. Can you give me the name of the cosmetics buyer? And they all gave me the names. So that's kind of how I got started was, um, was kind of just being a little sneaky sometimes and being resourceful. I, that's, I mean, it's so smart. Did any of the buyers in that first list end up placing orders? Yes. The first person I called, she was like, well, I'm going on vacation in two days so you can come down tomorrow. So I went down to Nordstrom in San Diego. She was the regional buying office and um, she wrote me a PO and I was like, okay, I don't even know what I'm going to do with this now. I got to make this stuff. So yeah. It's amazing. What was the biggest sort of immediate obstacle in those early days as you're getting those first orders in? I do remember, you know, a few things. One was the, the biggest immediate obstacle was I didn't know what I didn't know. So anybody who's starting a business, I would tell you, like, figure out what you don't even know so that you can work on that. Um, I remember just like things like, well, you need UPC codes on your product. Oh, okay. So, you know, there wasn't a Google search for that either. So I was literally like staying up at night doing the algorithm to figure out the check digit before, you know, I realized like there are people that do that for you. So, you know, all of those kinds of like little things added up to obstacles. I think the one of the biggest obstacles was we had a reorder, you know, we'd sold through everything right off the bat and it was really important to keep up the momentum. And the supplier that made our lipsticks was just like, you know, we have bigger order. We can't, we can't get to this. And I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? I like, I tried, I tried all my like naive kid things like, oh, I'll send her flowers. She'll relent. No, that didn't work. Like it was, you know, they were running a business and we didn't make sense. So I had to then go find another supplier. And that's when I really learned, like, you need to diversify your supply chain. Like it, you know, I thought, oh, I'll just use these guys. And I didn't have any other options. So, you know, it was really about being in the trenches and just making those errors and having to clean up your own mess that taught me a lot. Back to my conversation with Wendy in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about Skillshare. One of the things that I found most inspiring about Wendy's story is how she taught herself how to become a better marketer, how to work with investors. She really treats learning as a lifelong journey. She's always picking up new ideas and trying to make herself better. And that really resonates with me because learning is a lifelong journey. It's a thing that makes us all keep ticking and makes us do better. That's why I'm a big fan of Skillshare an online learning community with thousands of classes for creators, entrepreneurs, and curious people everywhere. You can take classes in anything from graphic design and photography to productivity to entrepreneurship. You name it, they've got it. I love that because my interests are changing constantly and some days I want to figure out how to become a more productive person and really focus on that kind of work. Other days I want to think about a hard skill that I want to pick up like improving my creative writing and I love that all of those things are available to me on Skillshare. You can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for Girlboss Radio listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for free. Skillshare is offering Girlboss listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash boss. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash B-O-S-S to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash boss. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Wendy. So eventually you guys brought some outside investment through yeah. private equity into the business, right? Yeah. How did you think about making that choice? When did you know that you were ready? That Was it that you needed the cash? Yes. Or like, how do you yes. go about that decision? Well, I think anytime a business gets to a certain size, 
um, in order to bring it to that next level of being big enough to be purchased by a strategic or to even go global and have, you know, the resources to open up offices in different countries like the UK and France, you really need some extra capital. And it also helps, I think, to choose a private equity partner that can bring expertise and knowledge and be a resource for you and not just, hey, here's your money and, you know, See ya. Yeah. See ya. Turn it over. And this is what we expect. So I think we chose really carefully. We worked with Castanea Partners. The founders are retail guys. They have a lot of history with brands and consumer brands. So they understand the space we were in. And I just felt like they were really uh, quality people. And I think it's important to not completely sell out your soul to, you know, you got to get up and do this every single day. So it has to be people that you trust, you want to work with. And that's why I think, um, you know, the people piece is so important when you're doing a business because it's your day-to-day life. Like it needs to be fun, exciting, enjoyable. It's still work, but it has to be, you have to be like motivated. Definitely. And was that a goal when you walked into the private equity investment? Did you know that you were going to want to sell the business to a strategic? Because you did eventually sell to L'Oreal. I think that's just the path we were on. I don't know that it was definitely we were going to sell to a strategic, but in order to continue to grow the business and be a player and continue to be, you know, a top brand at Sephora, you know, other brands were going to do that if we didn't. So, and, you know, we weren't able to meet the demands in terms of product. Like people were getting angry that things were selling out and we weren't able to supply as much as we needed to supply. And so part of that was, you know, cash flow issues. So in order to continue to grow and scale the business to meet our customers' demands, we had to do it. Can you explain for everyone who's listening, like what what exactly are the benefits of selling to a larger conglomeration like that? Well, I think for us, the biggest benefit was that we could then become a global brand. And I really felt like the message we were putting out there in terms of, you know, diversity and beauty, not having any boundaries, expressing yourself and that makeup really being a form of self-expression and not something to hide your flaws. I thought that was a really important message and it wasn't really being talked about um, anywhere else. And so we really wanted to kind of continue to spread the message and obviously grow the business. So that was one of the reasons we thought global was important. And it is really, really hard to do a big global expansion without the help of a strategic partner. I have some more questions about that. But actually, you said something really interesting there about sort of getting to that more mainstream scale and reaching as many people as possible with your vision. And I think that there is something in that that's so fascinating about the history of Urban Decay, because you did start with, you know, edgier colors, like there are lots of blues, there are lots of colors that I think people hadn't seen in mass beauty before. And it seems like from there, you know, you, I've heard you talk about, like, you wanted to break down the doors of the mainstream beauty industry. And to do that, you kept some of the edginess of the brand, but you also found ways to sort of integrate into the mainstream. And that's such a delicate balance. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a really delicate balance. I remember the first product where we did it wasn't, you're going to think it's the Naked Palette, but it's actually not. There was a product, it was an eyeshadow that we launched in 1997 called Midnight Cowboy. And it was a basic beige eyeshadow, but we put glitter in it. And I know that in 2019, that doesn't sound like that big a deal. But in 1997, it was actually really edgy and innovative. But what was cool was it was... It was a statement, but it was a statement everyone could feel comfortable wearing. And so it was our first real product where we sort of mainstreamed it out a little bit while keeping the edge. So it really is, I always say, like Urban Decay is that fine line between art and commerce. You always have to like make it artistic and yet at the same time find a way to sell to people. And, you know, beauty is a really interesting product because it is it is a packaged good. It is not unlike your Tide detergent or whatever detergent you use and you use it up every day. And if it works and you love it and it gets your clothes clean and they smell nice and you don't get irritated, you continue to buy it, right? So your beauty products are like that, but then they're not. At the same time, it's 
you put it on your face. It's your form of self-expression. It's a piece of art. It has to be, it has to speak to your soul in so many ways at the same time. So finding that perfect balance between a product that does, that functions and also is a piece of art and, you know, makes you feel good about yourself is, it's a really fine balance to find. Right. How do you stay reliable so people don't stray, but also surprise and delight? Yes. I, that's... that's a much more succinct way of saying it. <laughs> well... You're so good. I should take that. <laughs> By all means. That feels like it's something really easy to do when it's you making every last decision and saying, okay, we do this. This is great. I love the glitter in the sort of neutral palette, or these are the choices that we make that feel exactly right because the values of what I want to build are ingrained in me. So right. I know which compromises are right. But how do you actually scale that to a larger team? How do you, like, is there a framework you guys created inside of Urban Decay that help people make those decisions? So for us, the the product process has always been pretty tight. And it's the it's almost like the operational piece swirls around it. And then it's still very kitchen table. There's a table. It's off in the corner. It's we've always got stuff laid out on it. It's it's a working stand up table where we're just like mixing things and talking about product and brainstorming and jotting down ideas. And there's jars of coconut oil because there's so much swatching that happens that you're just having to like take off masses of mass amount to make up. So what we've tried to do is keep like for us the product, which is super sacred. We've tried to keep that piece kind of still really like small and entrepreneurial and you know, very hands-on. How do you um, hire for that team, the people who touch the product, which arguably is the most personal, special thing about the business? What do you look for in those people? You know, I look for people that have their own point of view on makeup and who really love makeup. They need to know a lot about it. They don't have to wear their makeup the same way I do. They don't even have to be incredibly edgy, but I feel like they need to be knowledgeable. They need to like just love having their hands in makeup every day and be that person who is willing to try on 10 different mascaras and, you know, be really, you know, be like systematic and critical and like just really love the process of coming up with the perfect formula. And at the same time, they have to be great project managers, have a great eye for color, smart, creative, you know, it's, it's, that's kind of the type. You have a great story about just sort of how collaborative the creation of the first naked palette yes. was. Tell us how it came to be. Well, I always call this my desert island story because I I always wanted a perfect little quad neutral palette because even though I love to wear bright color myself, whenever I travel, I'd like always packing like, okay, four neutrals or five neutrals and then my color. So I was like, wouldn't it be great to have a little palette that you could just pop in your bag and it was just neutral, the perfect set of neutrals. So I went to two of the people that work with me in product development. And I said, hey, if you were stranded on a desert island, what would be the four neutral shades you would bring? Bring them in tomorrow. So we brought them in. We laid them out. And it was almost exactly the naked palette. I think we had like one dupe and one spot where we were like, we could use sort of a, you know, kind of fawny matte neutral right there. And so with just a couple of changes, um, we laid it out. and We were like, this is a beautiful palette. So what was supposed to be picking four from 12 ended up being like, well, let's just go with the 12. I love that. And I think something that's so special about the Naked Palette, certainly, but so much of what you guys put out in the world is that it feels really malleable in terms of what types of different skin tones can access it. It doesn't feel like, okay, like you have a fair, you have a medium, and you have a dark, but actually skin tones really run the gamut. Right, they do. And you're creating these neutrals that actually feel like they fit that broader set of skin tones. How do you think about that? Because that's a really hard thing to accomplish. It is. I think part of it is that we're super committed to very pigmented shadows. So it's always been a quality thing for us. And if you have pigmentation, even if you have darker skin, if you have a lighter shadow, it won't look ashy if it's pigmented. We've also tried to always make sure we have those deeper shades in there so that it works on a range of skin tones no matter what you're trying to achieve. Talk to me about the decision to sunset the naked palette because I know people are still a little bit disappointed. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, we 
always want to create something new, that whole surprise and delight. And for me, it was, you know, I'm super attached to the Naked Palette. I always say the Naked Palette's our gateway drug for people. If they've never tried Urban Decay, they can always jump in with the Naked Palette. So it's always been a great sort of resource for us to get new customers. But um, we really wanted to create more new and different Naked Palettes. And there's only so much space out there. You know, we're not a big, you know, department store brand. We are focused on our, you know, partners that are like Ulta and Sephora, where we have more limited space. And so we had to, you know, we have to pick and choose. And it just was time. I also have to say, when we did the Naked Palette in 2010, I remember us sitting around going, this is really, really, really kind of towards the warm side. Like we thought it was like one of the warmest palettes that we had ever seen. And if you look at it now, it looks extremely cool. And so with shades definitely trending more towards the warmer side, we felt like it was time to warm up the Naked Palette. So that's why we did the Naked Reloaded. Back to my conversation with Wendy in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about ZipRecruiter. Ugh, hiring. It's one of those things that's so, so important, especially in a startup. Every role counts. Every person in every seat has to be a star player. And it takes so much time and mental energy to find those perfect candidates. I have a social strategist role that's open, and it keeps me up at night. But we recently started working with ZipRecruiter, which makes the whole process so much easier. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. They have powerful matching technology that allows them to scan thousands of resumes to find the right people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job on ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is actually so effective that four out of the five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. That's pretty great. And right now, all of you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash girlboss. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash G-I-R-L-B-O-S-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash girlboss. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, back to my conversation with Wendy Zomnier. I want to go back to the sale to L'Oreal. Okay. Because I think it would be really valuable to just understand more of like the nitty gritty details for anyone who is running a business today that has aspirations for a sale. What is that process like? How do you negotiate a sale? How do you find the right partner? And I know you had private equity in your corner to do some of that work, but what does that look like from your vantage point? Well, there's usually an investment banker involved as well that helps pull the deal together, you know, bring in the interested parties, negotiate the sale price, help you with the valuation, all of those things. So when you hear like investment banker, that's what those guys do. And um, they, they, they do a lot in terms of setting up the sale and bringing everyone together. It's definitely a process. You meet, you know, you see if there's chemistry. Sometimes there's an offer. Sometimes it's rejected. You go back and forth. Um, in our case, you know, we actually took a break from the process. And then um, we were, you know, looking at doing another round of private equity. And then L'Oreal came back and, you know, made an offer and we we took it. So, you know, it's it's definitely a back and forth. You definitely go into a room and meet with, you know, a bunch of executives and present your brand and what you stand for and how you've been successful and, you know, you go through every aspect of your business and they definitely come through it. They have their own team of investment bankers that do that as well. So, it is a really sort of thorough looking through all your closets. It's not just like, oh, this looks like a good business. Here's a check. You know, it's not that easy. It's it's uh, it's involved. Right. It's not like raising your first round of venture capital. No. <laughs> Did you guys have a price or a dollar amount in mind when you started the process? Like, is that your recommendation to people? The investment bankers definitely have a price in mind. They definitely have a valuation that they think you can get to. And then you're, you know, the private equity guys have been through this before. So they had a perspective on it as well. And then how do you protect 
the creative piece of it. How do you protect what the brand stands for to you? Are there sort of contractual elements that you would recommend people put into a sale so that, you know, whoever buys it doesn't turn it into something that's just loathsome to your value system? Well, I think it's important that you also, as this, as the brand, do your due diligence with the people you are selling it to. And you make a choice and understand that, you know, they're not going to, you know, not hold up your brand values. So I have to say, for example, L'Oreal, you know, they would have loved to have had us go right into China um, but they completely understood that our brand values of no animal testing did not allow it at that time. So they would not, they have not pushed us to do that, even though it's been a you know strategic focus for them as a corporation. They've respected our sort of commitment to no animal testing and cruelty-free makeup. So I have to say, you know, you have to do your own due diligence and make sure you're picking the right partner. And be upfront about things that are deal breakers to yes. you, I suppose. So you stayed on after the acquisition in the role of chief creative officer as well as founding partner. Is there a part of you that thought, I've been building this business for a really long time. This is an exit. Maybe I should just go retire to you know some kind of beautiful island and call it quits on this thing? Well, yes, that's always tempting. But um, but. I think if you're a creative person and you're you are a creator, it's hard to not be not have that in your life. And so for me, it's you know, Urban Decay is you know not only a creative outlet, but it also filled with people that I really care about. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of about this business is that we have this incredible team of you know mostly women, but a lot of great men as well, who you know they they support their families and buy cars and houses and have these great lives and fulfilling careers that are you know creative or dynamic or strategic or whatever they want to take it. And I'm most proud of the fact that we started something that now does that for all of these people. And I like being a part of that. You created wealth for your team. Yes. Speaking of your team, um, you said in a recent article in um, with the or an interview with the Coveteur something really powerful about leadership. I want to read you back your quote. I uh, said, "Feeling like even though you might work in the sales department, but you have a great idea for a product, and feeling like you can be heard. Great ideas can come from everywhere. It's my job to come up with a few, but also cherry pick the best ones from everybody." That's so incredible. And I think that that's actually really rare. A lot of leaders really with creative vision do want every idea to be their own. How do you lead with that philosophy in practice? Well, I think you just have to be a good listener. And I think you have to listen to everybody's idea. And then you have to marinate on it and figure out what the best path is. And I think you have to a little bit check your ego at the door, which I know is hard to do sometimes. But really good ideas can come from anywhere. And I think you're selling yourself and the business and the other team members short if you don't have yourself open to those ideas. I want to talk a little bit about your role today at Urban Decay. It feels like one of the really big pieces of the work is staying ahead of what's going to be trendy tomorrow and sort of predicting the future, which I think has been sort of one of the strengths of the brand probably forever. But I'm curious how that's changed because 20 years ago, staying ahead of the curve was about so much, so much about talking to people and so much about those relationships that you right. built. And today, anyone it feels can stay ahead just by looking at Instagram. Right. So how do you think about that today? Well, I think, you know, 20 years ago, I would talk to people in the stores and my sales team and you were always getting really great insights. And then you know, your cycle time on trends was longer, right? Now they're so quick. They just move so fast. So I think you're exactly right that, yeah, anyone with a phone can look at Instagram and sort of like, you know, figure out what those trends are. But um, I think it's more about being true to, true to the brand and reinterpreting like what's current, what's now um, for your brand. And one of the things I've always said is that, you know, 
constant evolution should be part of what urban decay is all about. We shouldn't always be, you know, stuck in where we started. It should be always evolving. So, you know, we should have our core values of being, you know, a fun brand, being an edgy brand. You know, we always say it's beauty with an edge. And how do you embody that in something that is, you know, of the moment? So it's you're really thinking about it internally almost. Like the exercise of branding starts with what you stand love. for and believe and what we love and what's important to us. And then how do you take that, you know, brow trend and interpret it so that it makes sense for us? What do you th- what are some of the things that you see coming down the pipe or that you're excited about that you can share? Well, I think we have some really exciting um, you know, glitter that's coming out that's really core to who Urban Decay is and I think it's really exciting for people and I think the way we are talking about it is really relevant and important for today. So, hopefully everyone will be excited about that when they see it. Is there a way for glitter to be eco-friendly? There is, and I've just actually started doing a lot of research on it, so that would be um, a really important next step. I think, you know, being able to always look at what you do and try to do it better and try to figure out a better way is really important. So we have all, you know, our FSC certified recycled boxes now. And, you know, when we first started doing Urban Decay, we had the little brown recycled boxes because brown was all you could get. And now, you know, the papers have gotten better. But sometimes, you know, you have to be really careful. There's things people are talking about that aren't necessarily, you know, they look eco-friendly on the surface, but they're really not. So one of the things like I tried to do a few years ago was trans translate anything that was uh, we made out of plastic into the corn plastic. Um, but the problem was the corn plastic sauce is made here in the U.S., and there was no one that could actually process it. So it would have to get shipped to another country and then shipped back. And then it's actually not, you can't throw it in your own trash and have it biodegrade. It's like commercially compostable. So by the time you look into all that, you realize, wow, that really wasn't saving. But then there are other things that are easy fixes like the glitter that should be done right away. That's so interesting. And I love that you sort of do that extra step of research and saying, hey, like these fuel costs actually don't they actually increase the carbon footprint. Right. How do you think about working with influencers? And I think the one example I'd love to talk about is Urban Decay did a collaboration with Game of Thrones. And I think our team, some of our team went um, and they were so blown away by two things. One, the level of attention to detail in the product, just in terms of that collaboration. And I'm curious, how do you quality control when you're working with a partner on something like that but also they went to this party that you guys threw and they were like it was incredible and like there were so many influencers and people were just having this like sort of experience of the makeup in a way that I think these guys hadn't experienced before and I'm curious how you think about curating that well I think everything you're talking about all goes back to the original thing we were saying at the very beginning about the products being storytelling and how we really started the brand with this idea that every little product tells a story. So when you're creating the product and the attention to detail, like that's part of the fun of creating the product is the attention to detail and finding all of those little areas and places where you can add like hidden meaning, texture, um, you know, just anything that like adds more life and tells more story about the product. And I think when you're working with a partner like HBO, they're storytellers too. So they eat that up. Um, You know, one of the other big clubs we had was Alice in Wonderland and they, you know, that was with Tim Burton and Disney and, you know, Tim Burton ate up all the details. So if you pick the right partner, the collaboration becomes very seamless and easy. Um, And then in terms of the party, you know, our teams are all sort of tied so into the product that the expression of the product in terms of a party, you know, it's, it's a pretty like easy rollout. I won't say it was easy for them to execute, but you know, the vision is already there for them to sort of just take it and blow it out into an experience. Um, in terms of all the influencers being there, I think, you know, we have worked hard to develop um, not just, uh, I would say, business relationships, but real personal relationships with people. I think you have to remember with influencers, they're still people. They're brands as well. You know, they have their own brands, but they're people. And, you know, it's all about connection. You know, 
Social media is great, but it's there's nothing like sitting across from someone and having conversation. Back to my conversation with Wendy in just a minute. I want to talk a little about ShipStation. Mm, oh my man, favorite. ShipStation's our favorite. Because we have so many entrepreneurs, side hustlers, small business owners, whatever you consider yourself, listening to Girl Boss Radio, which is why ShipStation is so important. It is the fastest and easiest way to manage and ship your orders all from one place. I wish I had this when I was an eBay oh seller, when I was a small business owner. It gets much more complicated after that. Uh, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to have a small business and manage your lifestyle. <laughs> And speaking of managing your lifestyle, ShipStation makes that possible. Uh, they work with Shopify, Squarespace, mm -hmm. Etsy, and over 75 other popular selling channels. And you can manage it from any device, even from your phone. And they create labels for all the top carriers, including USPS, FedEx, and UPS. It's super simple. You'll ship more with less time and with the best rates available. So you don't have to go on three different websites to figure out. And Maggie, we, we use it here, right? Yeah, we sure do. We use it all the time. We're shipping things day by day, hour by hour, and it can be really hard to track things things just due to human error you know you can be as specific and particular about things but there are so many labels that you end up sometimes accidentally m messing things up or mixing them up so ShipStation makes it so easy because their labels are so detailed they have exactly what you need to ship and if you're selling with Shopify or Squarespace or any of these selling channels it literally just sucks in the information that your customer types in for their checkout yeah instead of you having to read do it exactly so yeah mm -hmm. human error mm -hmm. bye 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 <laughs> thanks but no thanks so right now try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use our promo code girlboss so don't wait go to shipstation.com and before you do anything else click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in girlboss that's shipstation.com enter girlboss shipstation make, make ship happen, happen. More from my conversation with Wendy Zomnier. Given the increasingly transactional nature of, I think, what influencer marketing has started to feel like, is that a worthwhile investment for someone who's running a sort of smaller creative business or beauty business today? Or would you sort of advise those people to say, like, no, like, pursue different kinds of relationships, like, don't spend big money on influencers? Well, I think when you're a small brand, it's definitely hard to spend money on influencers, but I think you have to be creative. I mean, when we started out, it's not that different. I didn't have, we didn't have a lot of money. I went to the hardware store, the Laguna Beach hardware store and bought, bought a bunch of hardware store supplies, made press kits, mailed them out to a bunch of magazines and knocked on doors. And we didn't have the advertising dollars that would have warranted the editorial we got, but I was just persistent. And I think this you can do the same thing. Beauty influencers are like the new beauty editors. And I think if you develop a relationship with someone, you know, you might get some coverage. You know, I, I wouldn't say give up on influencer marketing. You just have to find a different way to do it. And you have to make it meaningful for the influencer. They're not just machines. They're uh, they, yes, they're making money, but a lot of them are like, they're passionate about beauty and they want to talk about what's new and special and amazing in beauty. And if you present them with something that strikes a chord, they're going to cover it. There's something you said that hurts my heart a little bit um, as someone who has spent most of her career um, as an editor and writer in magazines, specifically in fashion and beauty. You said, uh, you know, beauty influencers are the new beauty editors. Right. Do you think there isn't really a space for beauty and fashion editors to be sort of those arbiters of what's cool? I actually think there is a space for that. I wasn't meaning to say that beauty editors have been replaced, but they just have, you know, a, it's a different role. And I do think um, they are more of that sort of arbiter in a sort of global overview kind of way. And they're more, Im they're impartial. And, you know, it's more about like writing and thinking about the space versus reacting to product. So it's a different, you know, it's a different kind of perspective. But some of my best friends are beauty editors, and they do an amazing job slicing and dicing the industry and having really unique and interesting perspectives on it. So I think one more thing 
I wanted to touch on with influencers is how do you think about all of the influencers launching their own VD collections today? Are they competitors or are they potential collaborators? I really think about the beauty space in a, in a different way. I think that what we did as Urban Decay 20 years ago is we really cracked open the beauty space. So it makes me really happy to see independent brands and to see, you know, small brands succeeding because now this is the new normal. And so I think that influencers starting their own brand is great. I think a lot of them are going to be surprised at what running a business actually takes. But I think a lot of them who I've talked to and helped mentor actually are really amazing business people and will have a big future in it. I think other influencers are going to find that they more enjoy being an influencer and that's really their role. So I think it's a really cool moment where People are finding out what they're good at, what they enjoy, what makes them happy. And I love that Urban Decay was really sort of the pioneer into creating a space in the beauty industry where that's even possible. The sort of democratization of beauty. That is what I call it. Yes. I love it. Last question. Is there one bit of advice that you find yourself always giving the sort of newcomers that you're mentoring? What I always tell them is that you need to pay more attention to operations and finance than you and sales, um, sales administration than you ever thought you would. And you want to work on the product. You want to be creative. You want to work on the imagery. And you're probably really good at all of that. So make sure you find yourself a partner or an, a senior employee or someone who's going to really pay attention to that stuff. Because at the end of the day, it is a business and has to run like one. How do you think about what success means to you in your skin today? You've already accomplished so much. You've built and sold a company. You have this incredible job. You've built a great culture. What, what's the ambition? How, what are you striving for today? I think what I'm striving for is the same thing most women are still striving for. It's that balance. And I always feel like balance, you know, it's the hardest thing and it's the most fulfilling thing at the same time. So I have two boys. Um, they're teenagers now. I cannot believe it. But it's about finding the time to spend with them. It's about finding the time to keep yourself um, healthy and it's about finding the time to spend the right amount of time with your partner, about the right amount of time with your work, and find the things that make you passionate and keep you exciting and fulfilled. So it's about balancing all that stuff. Ah, the impossible yes. balance. Thank you so much, Wendy. This is so wonderful. Thanks for having me. You had great questions. Thank you. <laughs> and that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Wendy Zomnier for joining us. Before you go, though, I want to ask you for a quick favor. If you like Girlboss Radio, and I hope you do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many people as possible. And the more reviews we have, the easier it is for new listeners to discover us. Thanks so much. Talk soon. Talk soon.